Touchdown. 7.01 on a Monday. Happy Monday, everybody. Halford and Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Halford and Bruff in the morning is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. North Star! Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. Uh, we are also brought to you by the Delari family of Acura Dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Let's go to the phone lines right away. Joined as we are every Monday morning here on the Halford and Bruff Show. It's our Monday morning quarterback brought to you by the Clayton Public House. It is our NFL insider from Football Outsiders, Mike Tanier, here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I am pinned at the five-yard line, and I feel like I have no choice but to run three plays and punt and hope I can get the other team pinned at the five-yard line. <laughs> yes. Sunday night football. What a spectacle. That was actually a pretty good line from Chris Collinsworth, I think it was. He was like, has it felt like this whole game has been backed up at the 10-yard line? <laughs> I'm like, yes, it has, and it's been hilarious. <laughs> it was. I think there were five punts and a kickoff that were inside the 10-yard line, so they were always backed up along the way. The worst part about that is the game ran on and on. It ran well into the night here on the East Coast. Yeah. Not because of scoring, but because all those three and outs, the change of possession keeps stopping the clock. It was like like watching a high school game and waiting for it to end and neither team could move the ball. I feel like the Broncos are the perfect storm of unpreparedness, <laughs> lack of preparation, because Russell Wilson didn't partake in the preseason. That probably didn't help the situation. It looks like a bunch of the guys on offense didn't get enough reps because there's a lot of fumbles and a lot of drop passes. And you've also got what seems like a kind of not ready for this head coach in Nathaniel Hackett. The, the glaring issues were less yesterday, but even like the ball spot challenge late in the game, I thought that was kind of foolish. So it seems yeah. like, but in, in spite of all this, the Broncos are still 2-1. and one. Yeah, that's what's amazing. They're still 2-1. They could have been 3-0 and oh, if they you know, managed the clock better and got a play or didn't fumble in week one. Forget the, the end of the game stuff. You don't fumble the one-yard line a couple times. You're 3-0 and oh right now. But you're right. It's a lack of readiness. It looks like they didn't have just – Preseason reps, looks like they didn't have enough. The training camp reps weren't crisp enough. And Hackett, despite the fact he's been around the NFL for many, many years, seems to have a hard time with all of the basics of management. So I don't know where this goes from here. I, I have no idea where it goes because it could all snap together because they have the offensive talent and their defense is playing pretty well. But it's been so grinding and slow so far early in this year. I can't look at them and say this is anything but a team that's going to waddle around 500 for the whole season. Uh, two three and O teams after Sunday. The Giants could get there tonight with a win, but two three and O teams now. The Miami Dolphins, who we spent a bunch of time talking about in the previous segment, we left the other one for you because I know you led the walkthrough with them. The three and O Philadelphia Eagles, those soaring Philadelphia Eagles. Mike, uh, walk us through this one because it was a pretty dominant performance. Another one against the hapless Commanders and Carson Wentz yesterday. Yeah, another dominant performance that might not look dominant in the, in the stat sheet because the Eagles don't close out their teams in the fourth quarter very well. They didn't do it on Monday night against the Vikings, but they were in control, pillar to post. They didn't do it against the, uh, the Commanders, and they let the Lions come back in week one, frankly. But, you know, for the first half, first three quarters, this is a team playing very, very well on offense, very balanced on offense, very stout on defense. They can get sacks, they can get turnovers, they can get stops, and they're, and they're fine on special teams, too. So, you know, I, I led the walkthrough. You know, we're talking about Brady versus uh, Rodgers, almost obligatory to talk about Brady versus Rodgers, even though that game was almost as hard to watch as the Sunday yeah. night football game. And 
right now those aren't the best teams in the NFL. You know, the, the Brady does not have uh, any receivers because they're all hurt or suspended. Rodgers doesn't like all of his rookie receivers, and guys like Sammy Watkins are on the Sammy Watkins reserve. Uh, so right now the Eagles are the best team in the NFC. That could change in two or three weeks when other guys on, on the traditional contenders get healthy, but you have to look at the Eagles right now and say they're balanced, they're playing fundamentally sound, they've got the talent. They're the team to beat right now as of late September. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, you know, it's only week three, and we talk about, you know, usually by week four all the – the kinks have been ironed out, and you get a true sense of what a team might be. But I'm mm. looking at this and saying, it, Tampa Bay is obviously a different team than the ones of years past, and the Brady Magic clearly isn't exactly what it used to be, although it always seems to manifest itself later. I don't know yeah. what to think about the Packers because Rodgers is so good, and they did this last year as well where it was a lousy start followed by a great regular season. The Rams mm. are 2-1, and one, but I've watched all their games, and it's been good, not great. And Stafford right. still kind of looks wonky. And I do look at this Philly team, and I'm saying, if you know, it could be one of those lightning in a bottle teams with how dynamic Hertz is. And then honestly, after that, Mike, I have a hard time talking myself into anybody in the NFC. That's it. Yeah. That's it. There's nothing below that. The Vikings might be the next team below that. And my God, we just saw them get destroyed by the Eagles on Monday night. But yeah, it, it is a situation where, okay, the Buccaneers' defense is very strong, but on the offense, it's like, okay, Brady, go make plays, and we'll try to get your guys back. The Packers are what the Packers are. The Packers are, and and uh, you, you know you know they're going to have these games where they just sort of win based on what Aaron Rodgers did in that game. Eagles can beat you with Hurts. They can beat you with their running game and their offensive line. Now the Eagles can beat you with Hassan Reddick and the pass rush, Darius Slay and Bradbury. You know, top, top bookend corners. They can beat you on defense. And that's a lot of paths to victory, and that's something no other NFC team can point to right now. We're speaking to Mike Tannier, our NFL insider from Football Outsiders here on the Halford & Brough Show on Sportsnet 650. Uh, another game that we barely mentioned, although we alluded to the Chargers briefly, was the 38-10 whipping that the Jacksonville Jaguars and Trevor Lawrence put on the Chargers. I saw a stat somewhere that the 28-point margin of victory was the most in over two decades. In fact, I think the last time that the Jaguars beat anyone by this score, Trevor Lawrence was two years old. To give you an idea of how long it's been. Now, we kind of knew that there would be a bump given how bad last year was under Urban Meyer. And Doug Peterson's come in. He's a bit of a quarterback whisperer. But it sure seems that it's even more than that. That it looks like Lawrence is ready to deliver on all that promise that he had coming out of Clemson. He looks really, really good. Uh, The receiving core around him is not like a superstar world-beating receiver core. But just getting some professional guys and putting them in the right place getting all those Christian Kirks and Zay Joneses and Marvin Joneses and just running a competent offense help. And the offensive line looks very good. And that's something that I know Doug Peterson emphasized after the game. It's something that the team kind of kept their guys together on the offensive line, even though they didn't look phenomenal last year. And that's paid dividends as well. So you're right. It's a sign of going from just the chaos of last year to professionalism has helped the Jaguars make this bump. Now, I don't know what their staying power is. Uh, but but the idea is they've turned things around in the right direction. They've already solved that problem. This is a team that can look at this and say, whatever we do in 2022, we can build on it with Peterson and Lawrence, and that's night and day from where they were uh, last November, I suppose. If Lamar Jackson keeps playing at this level, uh, what are the consequences contract-wise going to be for the Baltimore Ravens? <laughs> None. They're, they're going to franchise him. They're going to offer him another oh, – Josh Allen looking contract, which is kind of what they're offering him anyway, and they'll franchise him if he says no. That that's the thing about this. I'm excited for what Lamar Jackson is doing. He's going to get paid one way or the other. But people who love talking about oh Jackson's going to get a bazillion dollars, this that and the other, 
the salary cap always wins. It's a, I mean, the franchise tag, it is a trump card. They can put that on him. He can't really hold out. If he tried to do some kind of hold in, it would it damage his reputation. That's what's happening moving forward. So I'm advising people right now, enjoy this version of, of Lamar Jackson. Enjoy this season and not turn it into a weekly drama about right. how much he's going to get paid in 2023. They, can, they can't keep franchise tagging him into perpetuity, though, can they? They can do it three times. They can right. do it once, and then they can do it again at a 20% raise, and then they could do it again at a 45% raise. Uh, at that third time, it gets goofy. It gets kind of ridiculous for them to do it. But when you have this year and next year and next year pretty much under control, under your control completely, yeah. you're not motivated, You're not a motivated uh, team to make a move. And, again, they put an offer on the table. He said, no, the Ravens really do have an unbelievable amount of control over this situation financially. Uh, you know, we saw a lot of big quarterback uh, contracts signed in the offseason, which is why Lamar Jackson is partly in the situation mm-hmm. that he's in. One of those contracts went to Kyler Murray. And since then, yes. it has not been good for the Arizona Cardinals. I like this because you have a, an exercise in the walkthrough. It's a special mm-hmm. investigation where you uncover, uh, does your offense stink? I like this. So the first question was, <laughs> with Kyler Murray, does the, Carolina, uh, does the Arizona Cardinals offense stink? What, what conclusion did you come to? Well, every game is like a whole new game for Cliff Kingsbury where he just bought Madden, he just downloaded it, he picked up his PS5 controller, and he says, what team do I want to be? What crazy, wacky playbook do I want to try out? And he goes in and he starts just randomly calling plays like you and I might do when we first get Madden. Ooh, there's a pistol, empty backfield, you know, double screen. Let's run that and see what it is. And that's their offense. It's not a coherent game plan. It's a bunch of, like, gadget plays randomly like thrown together and usually by the time Kingsbury has tried out all the wrinkles that the score is like you know 13 nothing the opponent Murray has gotten sacked a couple times he's run around in circles and it's like okay now let's try to figure out how we're going to come back and you know it's not on Murray I don't think Murray has played phenomenally but we've seen him obviously run highlight real plays in week two to get the the two-point conversion etc he doesn't he's not uh, uh supported by an offense that makes any sense. It's just a weird association of playmakers and plays, and it never fits together logically. Is it safe to say the Las Vegas Raiders are the, are the most disappointing team to start the season? And interestingly enough, by the way, they uh, host the Broncos next week, which okay. could be interesting. That's going to that's gonna be excruciating. That's going to be excruciating. <laughs> but, the, the, but the Raiders are doing a phenomenal job playing down to everybody. Of course, they played down to the Cardinals, certainly in week two. And um, you know, I think Josh McDaniels knew this. I, I, I always thought there was a disparity between McDaniels, who was looking at this team saying, i got to spend two years rebuilding, and, uh, and Davis and, and Mark Davis saying, oh, let's get Devontae Adams now and let's win tomorrow, et cetera, because Davis needs to sell tickets in Las Vegas uh, to that stadium. Um, but, but this is it. This is a team that has frontline talent that you can name, that you can watch, and they do play well. Adams plays well. Max Crosby plays well. They don't have a very good run defense. They don't have a very good pass defense. They don't have a very good offensive line. So the infrastructure is crumbling underneath that. I'm surprised they're 0-3. Frankly, we all thought they were going to be 1-2 until late in that Cardinals game. But this is a, this is a weak team that has a lot of work to do uh, over, the next, uh, over the rest of the season. Uh, one, probably the biggest upset of the week was the Colts coming back to stun the Chiefs in the fashion that they did. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. Having watched this game, the Chiefs did everything they could to make sure that the Colts stayed in that one, including that yeah. crazy penalty on Jones late in the game to extend a drive. Um, but yes. a lot of people – why now, again, 
we try and go through the analysis here and get a little deeper because I think a lot of people said, great on Matt Ryan for orchestrating and engineering this game-winning drive without mentioning okay. that it was very much aided by the penalty. So as yeah. we go through the stinky offenses, now that you've seen enough of the Colts, does that cold offense stink? Oh, it's horrendous. Yeah. Oh, it's a difficult, difficult watch. You know, they get a touchdown early in that game because there's a muff punt at the four-yard line, and they punch it in from the four-yard line, and from then on, it's nothing but sacks. And they're trying to really run Jonathan Taylor, and opponents are like, you can't beat us deep. You can't beat us deep, so we're going to load the box, and we're going to, you know, hit the run fist, and they're stuffing Taylor. And, and when Ryan looks to anybody other than Pittman, he's not really sure what he's looking at. And he's a statue in the pocket. And opponents know he's a statue in the pocket. So they're blitzing a gap. It's like, we're going to blitz up the middle. You're not going to Lamar Jackson your way out of this uh, situation. And it's really, really a tough watch there. So great win, great defensive performance. They took everything that the Chiefs gave them and made them pay for every mistake along the way. That's not a repeatable, sustainable course of victory for the Colts. That's a, that's a formula for losing more games to the Jaguars and tying them against the Texans. Uh, we do need to mention the New England Patriots, if only because of how bleak this outlook is right now. Even under Mac Jones's watch and what he was doing on offense, it looked very limited. Now yeah. Jones is hurt, and now they go to – and I can't – we looked it up prior to the show. We're like, is, is it Jared Stidham? No. Enter Brian yeah. Hoyer onto the scene. This might be a ghastly next few weeks for the Patriots because that offense has nothing going forward. That offense has nothing. I mean, they can run the ball okay. So they run the ball, and then they try to work the short middle of the field, and that's their offense. And I got, they got a shot or two out to Devontae Parker. That's not going to last. But, yeah, you take Mac Jones, who I, you know, I still think is sort of like an ordinary middle-of-the-pack quarterback, and that, that's what he's going to be for his career. You replace that with Brian Hoyer, who frankly should be the offensive coordinator right now. He should not be playing. <laughs> They don't have an offensive coordinator. He's yeah. your basic, you know, 30-something-year-old ex-backup. That's what offensive coordinators are. That's what he should be doing. It's going to, it's going to be borderline hilarious to watch. And I, I think what that does is that ends this experiment. You know, right. that, that ends the Belichick experiment where it's Patricia and Judge and all his old assistants and Kendrick Bourne and Nelson Aguilar. This is going to wipe the slate clean of that and say 2023, let's get back to a real coordinator and a real plan for building an offense that works. Uh, before we let you go, Mike, Monday night football, it is the Cowboys, it is the Giants. It's classic NFC East matchup. I made this my lock of the week on Friday when the Giants were a, a one-point favorite on Monday night football. Now, they, they're off to a 2-0 start. Saquon Barkley looks rejuvenated, but I, I, I kind of feel like it might be a bit of a mirage given who they beat that 2-0 record. And I kind of like Dallas going into this one. Give me your thoughts on tonight's game between the Cowboys and the Giants. The Giants injury report bears watching. We need to see who's in and who's out, especially among the receiving core. You're right. It's a mirage. Uh, at Football Outsiders, we have them ranked among the worst 0-2 teams in history in the last 40 – excuse me, 2-0 teams in history over the last 40 years. So it's a mirage. They don't have enough weapons potentially coming into this game. Keep an eye on it. Based on what I saw uh, in the injury report, I'm leaning towards the Cowboys as well. But – this is just an, uh, another ugly matchup. So we had an ugly Sunday night football game. We had an ugly Thursday night game. Now we're going to have an ugly Monday night game where we're going to figure out who's going to finish ultimately in second place in the NFC East to the Philadelphia Eagles. Hey, hey Mike, I, I know Halford said that it was the last question for you, but I, I'm, yeah. I'm, how much college football do you watch? I'm just wondering, uh, I've already got my eye on the draft because I'm a Seahawks fan, and yes. I'm not putting the Seahawks' disappointments this season on Geno Smith like, their run defense is embarrassing. There's a lot of things about that team that aren't good enough. But obviously, Geno Smith isn't going to be the answer going forward. 
Um, I'm just wondering who, who you think, if you've got an opinion on who the first quarterback off the board is going to be, because I watched a bit of C.J. Stroud over the weekend. He looked good, but I, yep. I don't consider myself a, a college football expert by any means. Right, and I'm going to say right now I haven't been watching and I have not been scouting college football. Like I often do that starting in December when we've got more head-to-head matchups, championship games, and I've been able to stop watching about 20 of the NFL teams. Yo, no, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, there are going to be quarterbacks in this draft, and you should be looking to them. And I've seen nothing from Young or Stroud or some of the other guys coming up to say, oh, no, this is a red flag. They're going to fall off the chase. There will be quarterbacks available. And, yes, the Seahawks will be one of those teams looking for them. Uh, Mike, thanks for doing this today, bud. We really appreciate it. Enjoy the game tonight and enjoy Thursday Night Football. We'll do this again uh, next Monday. Absolutely. Take care and enjoy your week. You too, thanks. That's Mike Tannier, our Monday morning quarterback, brought to you by the Clayton Public House. Pre-game to post-game, the Clayton Public House is your home for football. Catch all the action on 15 screens and two, count them, two giant projectors. Visit them online at ClaytonPub.com. Do you have uh, do you have any inkling on, on which quarterback you'd like the Seahawks to get? Or do, do you have any thoughts on that quarterback class? Or are you just not ready to talk about it yet? I mean, I've watched like highlights of guys, yeah. right? And I know who's at the top of the class because I've gone and done the... Mel Kuyper just came out with his list, and I'm like, yeah. I'm reading this. Yeah, no, it, like that He's is... He's actually got that um, the Kentucky kid ahead of Bryce Young. Right. I know that there's three can. Is it three or four? There's three candidates to be first round. I don't maybe know necessarily top 10, but like top 15 picks that could be franchise type guys. Well, the top three were CJ Stroud yeah. of Ohio State, uh, Will Levis of Kentucky, and then Bryce Young in right. Alabama. Um, the Washington State also has, has, a, has a kid, but I don't know if he's considered even first round. Yeah. Um, okay, what I want to do before we start talking to Chris Faber from Canucks Army and Canucks Conversation here on the Halford & Brush Show on Sportsnet 650, he's coming up next, is circle back on a couple of the stories that we didn't really get to hash out from the start of the show, uh, one of them being the Nils Hoaglander situation. We touched on it kind of briefly in the first segment about what hit, the again, early days, training camp, and then one split squad game. But what he's able to, what he's been able to do in front of the coaching staff and the early days of this preseason. So as everyone knows, Hoaglander had a very tough sophomore campaign last season, uh, and it really sh- actually was it put a spotlight on when Bruce Boudreau came in as the head coach, and you really started to notice that oftentimes Hoaglander was low man in terms of ice time. Occasionally he was on the outside looking in yeah. of when they would drop it down to three lines late in games. The production wasn't there. It was a struggle without question in an off season where the Canucks went out and added three guys at forward. I know Lazar's a center and Hoaglander's a winger. Just bear with me. This looked like a message was being sent to the guy that, Hey, your spot on the active roster on opening night is by no means guaranteed. Mm-hmm. And that's a challenge issued to Hoaglander. So I think it was very telling that he showed up to camp in great shape. Bruce Boudreaux went out of his way to praise him for how good that he looked. And then by all reports yesterday in Calgary, even though the Canucks lost 4 nothing, Hoaglander was maybe the most NHL-vested guy on that team. And he drove play and led the charge and was feisty and was engaged. He took two penalties, which isn't great, but I digress. I just think overall... It's a good sign. Aggression penalties, those are good. You like a fine. good aggression penalty, yeah. right? Like, you'll take it, especially in an exhibition game. Uh, bigger picture, though, I think it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. I think all these things, as we read way too much 
into the early days of the preseason. I think it's a good thing I, for Hoagland. I, I don't think it's reading too much into the into a situation. Um, I think with all the young players we've seen come through Vancouver, you always want to see how they respond to adversity. And the guys who don't well respond well to adversity, get rid of them. Do not put too much extra effort into them because it probably won't pan out. Guy wants to be traded, trade him. Guy doesn't come to camp in shape. That's a major red flag that you're not taking that you're not taking things seriously. So I think back to last season, and I believe there was a back to back on the road where Paul Colson got healthied once, Nils Hoglander got healthied yeah, another time. I remember. Yeah. Think of how both those guys have responded. Paul Colson finished the season really well, and he was probably well, he might have been the best Canuck on the ice in Vancouver. Last night, um, I think we're all excited about what Pod Colson can do this season. Hoaglander didn't respond as quickly as Pod Colson did, but we're seeing it now. Yep. And I just think you you want that. You don't want guys that shy away from challenges. You want guys that go like, yeah, the like I'm gonna have. Ch- think of the challenges that you know most players go through, from mm-hmm. Sidney Crosby. To Alex Ovechkin, like Sid had the the had the injury challenges that he had to had to face, and, and also like there were disappointments for the Penguins. Alex Ove- Alex Ovechkin had all sorts of challenges in 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 Washington, all sorts of criticism launched at him. He eventually gets over the hump, gets a Stanley Cup. Vancouver, Elias Pettersson last year. I mean that was some adversity and. He responded well, mm-hmm. and he's going to have to keep responding well because, in 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 my mind at least, that ain't over yet. Right? Like it, there there's still another few chapters to to write on what happened last season, and getting off to a good start this season would go a long way. Quinn Hughes, we've seen that, right? Mm-hmm. Like he, he he was talked about that. So that interview he did with uh, American Fridge, which was honestly terrific. He, yeah. he he said that you know his his first season his rookie season everything was great. His second season not so much. And he was really frustrated at looking at his plus minus and how his minus was, you know, like like a dash or whatever he called it, sure. right? And 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 then last season I thought he responded well. His his story still needs to be written because he needs to get to a, a, another level. He needs to quote unquote level up. There you go. We need the uh, sound bite. So you know, I, I just like seeing how guys respond to adversity because I think we've seen some players come through Vancouver and they just haven't met the challenges. Sometimes they're just not capable of doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about a player like Goldobin, right? You're asking him to play at the NHL level with NHL intensity. Maybe he just wasn't capable of doing that. Um, I, I always remember some quotes that came out from, from Travis Green. He's like, you know, some players, like, they think they're working hard, but they're not, mm-hmm. right? They, they don't know. They don't know what working hard is. Jonathan Dolan, Jake Furtanen, all these guys that came in and either didn't stay in shape or as soon as the going got hard, they were like, trade me out of here. I, I don't want to be here, right? Mm-hmm. Those aren't the guys you want on your team anyway. Yeah, adver- adversity is a really funny thing because – you 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 hear coaches talk about it and it's almost like they want their guys to experience it and experience it early when the stakes are kind of low so that you can see how they react to it then you know right so it's funny we were talking about the dolphins after that week 2 loss mike mcdaniel i was listening to his presser he actually went up there and said you know 
and I, I don't, I've never really heard a coach put it this way. He's like, I actually wanted us, and I talked about it, to fall behind in a game so I could see how we would react, right? Because they the, the first game didn't have that element to it. And he's like, you got to know how your quarterback's going to play when it's time to play catch-up or it's time to start making some plays under duress. You got to know how your team's going to respond to being down. Do they fold the tent? Yeah. Do they say, ah, we don't have it today. Let's just flush it and come back next week. Do they rally? The key is to have the guys go through this and then figure it out so when you are moving forward, you can kind of count on, Mm -hmm. well, this guy does pretty well when things aren't going great. He has an ability to find his way out of it, or he has an ability to shake off bad performances and come back. Like, for example, what happened with Pedersen last year could end up being hugely valuable for him over his career. Well, one of the things he said um, a few weeks ago, he said, uh, I'm, I'm in a way, I'm glad I went through that because I learned how to get out of it. And he didn't want to go into too many details because I'm sure we didn't. he didn't want all of us trying to pick him apart like amateur sports psychologists. Right. But when he did say that, I, I perked up. I was like, okay, well, that, that's good, right? Now, did he truly find a solution to what happens when you're struggling, right? Hopefully. I mean, mm-hmm. he thinks he did. And that's why there's so much pressure on this year because we've kind of said, all right, well, you've gone through that and you said that you've learned what happened and you've learned how to get out of it. Mm-hmm. So play well. Well, no, I think it's different <laughs> you know? than that, though. I think if you want to look at it just in terms of a problem-solving exercise for him, and I know we're way up against it for time, but whatever. Um, what you got to do, I think this is how what he's talking about, is everyone's going to go through slumps, right? Outside of maybe... McDavid and McKinnon and Matthews and maybe Crosby, there's going to be a few games where your production's not there or you're not lighting it up. The key to figuring it out is not to have what Pedersen had last year where the slump was the first half of the season. Like the shame spiral, basically? And it's like, like, this has been 30 games of this, right? You need to be able to kind of nip it in the bud where it's two games, you've been off your game. You have to say, what have I done in the past to get my game back on track? What have I done to be productive, to score goals, to set guys up? And that's something that's learned. Well, I also think it's your way of thinking, too. Yeah, I, it is. I, I really do think that Pedersen's problems last year were 90% mental. And it's funny because he was, and we've mentioned this before, but in the scrum, he was given the option to use the excuses. Like, well, you, you, you change sticks. <laughs> or you, you had you had the wrist injuries like right yeah and he and he just kind of like sloughed those off and it was like my confidence was low like that that was it and it looked like it it was obvious right yep. bobbling the puck like he's an NHL player mm-hmm. he 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 has a ton of talent it's not like he uses it it was like oh the flex was a little off so I couldn't stick handle anymore yeah, right? right like it just it makes no sense right he's falling. He just looks miserable all the time. It's like, I've ne- you know, I, I know technology is important and equipment is important, but I've, I've never seen a guy change his stick and suddenly become really sad. He's like, I got to get my st- the old stick back. Was a happy. The stick. old stick was a happy <laughs> stick. Yeah, it's just making me miserable. No, I know, I, that, and I think that it was really it was mental. And we said it so many times. It's like his game abandoned him. But hopefully. Again, with all the adversity talk and everything, he's learned the lessons that that won't happen for as long a period of time moving forward. I mean, I think it's going to be really interesting. We talked to Chris Faber and Ian McIntyre about this, yep. about who he's going to play with this year. right? The most success he's 
ever had, probably, is with the lotto line when he was with Besser and Miller. Mm-hmm. But Bruce doesn't want to do that. He wants to go three centers with Petey, Miller, and, and Horvat down the middle. So he's going to have to find some cohesion with someone. Kuzmenko, baby, I'm telling you. I hope so, it's man. It's going to happen. I, I have hope a feeling. So. I love that you're Kuzmenko's biggest fan. Well, he he looked good. He shot the puck a lot last night. He looked comfortable out there. Yeah, I'm no, not. I, I, I mean, I really. I mean, no, look, look no I'm points, with you, man. Like, I I think it's. I, think I just it's, hope. It, I love his personality too. Yeah. I, I I think he's gonna. I think here's what what could happen with Kuzmenko. He might have trouble with the grind of the NHL, and they're already talking about how it's not that he's out of shape, but he's kind of like. <laughs> doing some heavy breathing out there because you just I'm, have to I, work a lot harder than the case. I think the pace is just different, right? So guys maybe hit you he, more. You've just got to get used to that pace, and a lot of it is your your conditioning. But it's not even like your physical conditioning; it's almost like your mental conditioning. Is like I'm not used to being this tired, right? You mm-hmm. just have to get almost used to playing in those situations where you're really tired sometimes. Uh, we'll talk about all this next with Chris Faber from Canucks Army here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. on top of the point to Kuzmenko, right circle, into the far corner for Pedersen, center, pass to the back door, Garland scores! Dustin Wolf stopped Connor Garland on the first attempt, but he got his own rebound, and the Canucks tie the game with 131 left in the third. Well, I thought, you know, we never quit. I mean, it uh, would have been pretty easy. I mean, uh, they had seven power plays, I think, so it's... Uh, uh, but kept pushing through, pushing through, especially when we lost a player, you know, with 11 forwards. It gets a little more difficult when you're killing a lot of penalties, but um, I thought the never quit thing is an important thing with us. It was last year. I think it will be this year. 7.37 on a Monday. 7.37. Who comes back from break at 7.37? The Halford and Bruff Show, that's who. You're listening to Halford and Bruff on Sportsnet 650. Halford and Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. We are also brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. I knew it was 737 because that's what the big clock says here. I said clock in the Kintex studio here. It's a, oh, that, it's a grandfather your, your... clock. It's, yeah, it's, it's hard to giant. tell time with the hands and what have you. Uh, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. Uh, our next guest, you hear him on the Canucks Conversation podcast. You read him in Canucks Army. He joins us now. He is Chris Faber here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. What up, Fabes? Doing good, guys. If I was paid for these hits, this pay per minute would be great coming in at 7.38 right now. I was going to say, we've cut your airtime short here, but that's okay. we still got about 20 minutes that we can fill here. And there's lots to fill because there were two, count of two games last night. You must have been in heaven getting to watch two split squad games, Faber. Oh, it was awesome. It's exactly what I like. A bunch of (laughs) AHL players playing. That's exactly the hockey that I like. Uh, uh, I mean, it, it was kind of nice to be at Rogers Arena last night and right. not have to watch uh, what happened in Calgary because that wasn't a very great game for the Vancouver Canucks. At least there was a little bit of excitement. 
uh, at Rogers Arena with some late goals from Vasily Podkolzin and Connor Garland, and uh, even a little bit of three-on-three action there before that uh, pretty weak penalty on Podkolzin in overtime. So the, the bummer of the night, really, aside from losing in overtime, was the Ilya Mikhaev injury. Did you get even close to enough of a viewing of the kuzmenko pedersen Mikhaev trio to get a sense of what they might be like? Because Jason and I have talked a lot about that this morning, about, you know, it's it's a pretty big deal that Pedersen is playing with the two shiny new toys and there's a lot at stake here because they do need to find some chemistry and how they play with one another if they're going to be a thing moving forward and hopefully into the regular season. Yeah, honestly, I really just tried to keep an eye on Kuzmenko throughout the game. Like, whether it was with the puck, without the puck, I wanted to see the way that he was moving, the way that he was going to lanes, the way that he was finding open space. And throughout the game, I think he did a pretty good job in the first period. Like, you, you could tell that he was... He was really thinking the game the right way in the offensive zone, finding open space and being able to kind of continue the cycle and and certain things like that. And then uh, it was kind of tough to to really evaluate that line after Mikheyev went down. I mean, it was uh, it was kind of just hoping to watch that there's some chemistry being built between Pedersen and uh, and Kuzmenko. And I think that that's a pairing that might end up working pretty well. Uh, uh, I know A. Cole's going to love that, but uh, we'll have to see if, if it continues to kind of grow together through the chemistry between that pairing. I mean, there's there's a lot of really good offensive traits that you can see uh, from Kuzmenko, and if he's able to get that shot off, uh, it's going to be great to see him watch with Pedersen, uh, who two players who obviously can make good plays, good playmaking together. And, and I didn't think the speed was too much for Kuzmenko uh, in his first preseason game, but uh, I, I did see that he had the longest uh, shifts at 59 seconds per shift. Um, so that's a little bit uh, of something that he's probably going to have to work on. It's very different uh, from the KHL over to the NHL, especially when you're in the offensive zone for a long time. I mean, it, it is going to be interesting to see how he kind of adjusts to that. I remember seeing a similar thing with Niels Huglander in the SHL because he always had really long shifts in the SHL. Uh, but Vasily Colson was an example of a player who, because the coach, uh, I don't want to say like hated him, but was very hard on him in the KHL, he was a guy that was already doing those 25 to 30 second shifts so much in the KHL, it's going to be interesting to watch Kuzmenko adjust for that. What do you think the thinking is behind putting Mikheyev with Pedersen and Kuzmenko? Honestly, I feel like it's just like kind of adding some madness to that line. It's like this already feels like there's enough. You're bringing a guy over from the KHL, uh, and now you're just putting in this guy who has ridiculous speed. And I think there was even a couple times uh, before Mikheyev went down where he just took the puck up kind of the right side of the ice and was able to like have a guy be a few feet in front of him and then he gets a few strides and he's already in line with him. And by the time he hits the opposition's blue line, he's making a push to, you know, create an almost two-on-one situation. I think that the flat-out speed that Mikheyev shows is going to be something very interesting for the Canucks. And uh, early in the game, I did take note as well, seeing that he was playing with Pedersen on a penalty kill. I think they're really going to try and put Mikheyev in a spot for him to just you know, go wild and let loose and take off with that speed and be something that they utilize in, in kind of just creating a disturbance against the opposition and, and really making sure that that's a part of his game that they want to open up. And I think making that combination be something like uh, Pedersen, Kuzmenko, and Mikheyev, I, I do like Kuzmenko's play in the neutral zone. I think he moves the puck out of the defensive zone well as well. The, these are things that he did in the KHL at a, at a very high level. Uh, but now he's going to have to go up against opposition that's at a higher level as well. So if he can do those same things and you're kind of using uh, the two low forwards, uh, B. Pedersen and Kuzmenko, you can kind of just open it up for Mikheyev to kind of get into the offensive zone and, and really create a lot of these odd man rushes that you kind of want to use and, and get from his speed. Speaking of the penalty kill, which got a workout last night, uh, how did Danny DeKaiser 
look out there. He spent six minutes on the PK. I don't believe he was one of the defensemen on the ice when the Flames won it in overtime. I think that was Shen and Myers. Um, how did DeKaiser look? Because the PK might be his avenue onto this Canucks team. Yeah, I, I was watching him for sure on the penalty kill. I mean, he was a guy that uh, I, I thought he moved, you know, fine. He was able to get into some shooting lanes pretty well. Um, I know, like, like I didn't really have high expectations for what he was going to do. I still found it pretty interesting that he's been paired up with Tyler Myers throughout all training camp and now early into preseason as well. I think at five one five, you can definitely see that his foot speed is definitely at a lower level than even you know even some of the prospects like. You know, I thought the Kaiser kind of moved in a similar way to Jet Wu, where it's like, well, it doesn't really look like he's ready to move at the NHL level. But on, on the penalty kill, like he did, I think he did a pretty good job of blocking shots, getting in lanes, um, specifically shooting lanes. Like I could see that he's he's a player who moved kind of well when you're watching the, the players on the penalty kill kind of rotate. It seemed like he rotated out to shooters pretty quickly, was able to kind of take away those shooting lanes. I just... You know, you see him at 5-on-5, five five, you see him moving the puck, and you're like, I don't know if there's really a lot of NHL talent at that point. Um, but I think Boudreaux mentioned it. Maybe he's a little nervous. He's on a new team. But, you know, it's it's a guy who's a veteran. He should be able to uh, kind of put those nerves away, I think, at this point. But maybe just game one gets out of there. And uh, I, I'd i be interested to see if he still plays with Myers in his second preseason game. I think that's a spot for him to, like, you couldn't really ask for a better spot on a player on a PTO to be playing with the right shot defenseman who was third in minutes for the Vancouver Canucks last year. I mean, this is a, a huge opportunity for DeKaiser. And I think on the penalty kill, like, he did help. He Like, he held his own, I think, to a certain degree. I just don't know if it was really there at 5-on-5 to say that he had a good night. Uh, we're speaking to Chris Faber from Canucks Conversation Podcast and Canucks Army here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Running through last night's preseason action and, of course, training camp, which was up in Whistler this past weekend. So Canucks lose the first of the split squad 3-2 in overtime at Rogers Arena. Over in Calgary, uh, a much less NHL experience lineup for the Canucks. Loses 4-0 to the Flames, who had the likes of Huberto and Toffoli, etc., etc. One of the guys that did play in Calgary that definitely stood out, at least as far as the highlights that I saw, was Nils Hoglander. And we spent a fair amount of time uh, in the first segment of this show talking about the challenge issued to Hoglander last year and then at training camp where he was kind of on the outside looking in in terms of the line rushes. And Boudreaux was quick to praise Hoglander about showing up in shape, being one of their best players. It seems as though that intensity is carried over at least to the early parts of the preseason games, Faber. What did you see from Hoglander up in Whistler and throughout training camp? And what do you make of him responding to the challenge put in front of him? Yeah, I, I still even remember like the first summer skate where Hoglander showed up and I've kind of forgot like how fast this kid really is like mm. he is a incredibly good skater even when he's up against NHL competition and I think he showed that throughout training camp I mean this is a player who who would fit on a lot of NHL rosters I, I think the Canucks have so much in their top nine when it comes to the wings that it does make it a little bit difficult for Huglander but like man there's there's definitely an NHL player here and I think that it's going to be interesting to kind of watch it play out I think he played a little bit of a grittier style last night. I, I liked that. I, you know, I liked him getting getting involved with the Flames. I know he threw kind of a high hit at one point and even like started a big scrum. 
Uh, he's done that in the past. Like, we've seen Huglander be a little bit of uh, I don't want to say a rat, but he's got, like, a little bit of a rat in him. Like, at times when he, when he does want to be like that. And, you know, this is a player who obviously had a, a down season last year. He still played in 60 games uh, before the injury. And it's interesting, like, you look at some of the some of the simple analytics behind Huglander's game and, like, no forward on the team was on the ice for more scoring chances per 60 than Niels Huglander. He's still an excellent creator of offense at 5-on-5. Five five. He still had really good numbers when he was playing with Elias Pettersson. It, his spot right now is just so interesting because it's almost like he he is going to be in a spot, I think, unless an injury occurs and we see something long-term where he, he's just going to have to be used as kind of the, the sleeper player who's going to come up from the AHL and make an impact in the top nine when an opportunity presents itself. And, I did find it kind of interesting that, you know, we don't see Brock Besser on the final day of training camp, but Niels Huglander's still on that line with Linus Carlson uh, and Niels Amon instead of getting an opportunity to move up. I, I wonder how different that is when we're in the regular season where, you know, any situation like, you know, if Mikheyev's out for a game now or if Besser's out for a game, it, it should be thrown right to Niels Huglander. And the fact that he's still on his ELC, you don't have to worry about waivers with him and he could just be down in Abbotsford. Like, there are going to be top nine opportunities for Huglander. Like, I think within the first few weeks of the season, it kind of feels like the way that um, we've already seen a couple of these wingers go down. So, for him, it's going to have to be about seizing those opportunities. I think he did a really good job at training camp of doing exactly that. He came up, like you said. He showed up. He was in great shape. He moved extremely well. Boudreaux even mentioned that he thought he was quicker this season. So, everything that was kind of asked of him up to this point, he's passed. And he's done a really good job of. It, it just... To me, it's almost like, what does he have to do to actually get into the top nine? Like, I don't know. Would he have to score, you know, nine goals in five preseason games? Like, that would probably get him into the lineup. But aside from that, like, I'm not really sure what Huglander can even do at this point to kind of get into the roster uh, unless we see an injury. That's kind of the only route that I see right now for Huglander to actually make the opening night roster. How do you think these this defense is going to shake out? Because we've we've already got this discussion about Danny DeKaiser and and, and whether the Canucks are going to uh, turn his PTO in into a one year contract. Jack Rathbone yesterday played almost twenty six minutes, including eight minutes on the power play and five minutes shorthanded. He was out there for a lot of special teams. <laughs> now, the bad news was that he played eight minutes on the power play. And there were no goals in there for for the Canucks. Um, I, I I could see him making the Canucks and being on the third pair, maybe with Luke Shen. I could see him making the Canucks and being a healthy scratch in Game One. I, I guess I could also see him being sent down to to Abbotsford to start the season, especially if the Canucks sign DeKaiser and they got a numbers crunch. Yeah, I mean, they really gave him all the opportunity yesterday. I mean, he kind of touched on it. He's got Pedersen on one side and Garland on the other. I mean, this is a great setup for a preseason game for a player to get that role. And uh, kind of found it interesting. I mean, they they definitely converted Tyler Myers into a defensive defenseman. The fact that um, it was Rathbone and um, was it Kalyanuk on the, on the back end there for both the power plays? I mean... He's a player who's going to get a lot of these opportunities. I, I don't think this is the only game we're going to see him around 25 minutes of ice time in the preseason. They're, they're going to push him in that spot. They're going to you know, line him up with Shen. They're probably going to give him a chance, I hope, with Myers at some point. See what he looks like. I mean, I, I thought that from the defenseman, uh, you know, looking at like NHL caliber defenseman on the Canucks last night, I think Jack Rathbone played the best out of all of them. I think he played better than Myers. I think he was better than DeKaiser. I think he was... You know, he fit pretty well with uh, Luke Shen. So if they are going to go with this Oliver Ekman-Larsen and Quinn Hughes situation on the top pairing, 
it, it does really open up the door for Jack Rathbone. And I think the door is just even, you know, slammed open even more by Luke Shen to be in that spot because what a, a nice soft landing point it is uh, for Rathbone to come in and play with Luke Shen instead of, we remember last year, um, getting an opportunity to start the season with Tyler Myers. I mean, that's a, a guy who comes in and gets an opportunity to play on a line where it, it, it's a little bit more difficult. It's not so much of a soft landing when you're playing with um, different defensemen that, that's away from Luke Shen. I mean, he just kind of calms everything down uh, for Rathbone. I expect to see that pairing get a few more minutes uh, throughout this preseason. He, he's just got to continue to do what he does well. I mean, he, you know, he attempted nine shots on net. That's something that uh, he obviously had a lot of on the power play, but even at five on five, I, I like the way that he moves. I like the way that he gets to the right side and has that one-timer option for the other defenseman. Um, and it's something that I don't think you really see a lot of through the rest of the Canucks defense core. Like I, I think Travis Dermott has an all right one-timer. Uh, I think Quinn Hughes has it at times, but Jack Rathbone really like if he is going to bring offense at five on five, it, a lot of it's going to come from his slap shot, which I think might end up being the best slap shot out of the defense core. I don't think that's too much of a stretch to say. I think that offensively, especially talking about shooting, he might be the best shooter on this Canucks' defense. Uh, and that's going to be really benefit him if he is going to make this team because that's where offense can come from 5-on-5 five five for a defenseman. you got to be able to shoot the puck. you got to be able to beat goaltenders. Uh, and Rathman, I think, does have the best potential for that at 5-on-5 five five this year. So that could be his ticket to getting to the NHL on the opening night roster. And so far, so good with him and Luke Shen. I think it'll be interesting to see if they can build some chemistry throughout the preseason here. It's funny, when we talk about the Canucks defense, there's a lot of people that are like, yeah, they need more puck movers, so of course Rathbone has to be in the lineup. <laughs> but then they're also like, yeah, but they need better defensive players too, and that's why Danny DeKaiser is getting a chance. It's like, this defense group, uh, it seems to me, has just so much to prove, and if they wanted to use the doubt of the fan base or the doubt of the media, man, by all means, use it. Use what whatever you can use to motivate you because there is a lot of doubt about this group. And when you look at the collection of the group, you're kind of like, I don't know what this is. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, I don't I think... know, like, what, I mean, you mentioned, it's funny, it's like, they're turning Tyler Myers into a, a defensive defenseman. Like, I get why they're doing it. It's because they don't have many of those, but you also don't want to take away the, the thing that he probably does best, and that might be moving the puck. Yeah, and I mean, you look at like the pairings that they even kind of worked last year, and they've, they're have they not like buying into that at all. It feels like they're like, you know what, let's try OEL and Quinn Hughes. So maybe they're trying to change the way that you kind of look at the defense core. Like, I don't know how different this, or how much better really this defense group looks like when you put Quinn Hughes and Oliver ekman Larson together, because... We haven't seen it for like a 15-game stretch at the regular season. Like, it could look very different. Maybe Tyler Myers is turning back into the offensive defenseman if he's playing with DeKaiser down the road in the season. But you're right. Like, it feels like, to me, and specifically if you do end up using the Quinn Hughes-Oliver Ekman-Larsen pairing, like, this team almost has to rely on being a team that just plays the wheels off of that pairing. And then it's just like, you know, they have a top pairing and then they have a bottom four. Like, I don't think the Canucks have a top four if you're putting together Quinn Hughes and Oliver Ekman Larson, just because of the situation with Tyler Myers, where, yeah, he's going to get his minutes. Like, you know, even when he's not um, really on a pairing with like an Oliver Ekman Larson, Myers is going to find his minutes. I don't know how he does it. He's a magician about it. He just finds his way to get to like 22, 24 minutes a night. It's going to be really interesting to see if it happens like with Quinn Hughes and Oliver Ekman Larson playing together because. I, I don't know who that guy is for Tyler Myers. We haven't seen Travis Dermott get the opportunity in training camp or preseason. Like, maybe Rathbone goes there. I don't think DeKaiser's really going to be the guy that's playing for the Vancouver Canucks on opening night. 
Um, we've seen them like talk about Tucker Pullman being able to play the left side. Like there, there is so many questions about this defense core, and I don't think we've had very much of it answered so far up to this point. I think the only like question we've had answered is is Quinn Hughes going to play the right side? And up to this point, we think so, but like we haven't seen a regular season game where he's played that spot yet. Like. I don't know. There's so many questions about this defense core. I just say they got to start drafting defensemen. Just start like filling up the prospect pool with something because this needs to be like a work in progress instead of just kind of trying so many different things uh, and hoping that something fits because this, this defense core definitely still needs work and you can kind of see it with how many questions are being asked of it compared to the rest of the team. There's not a lot of questions about goaltending. There's not a lot of questions about the forward group because you think that things are going to work. All the questions are coming about the defense core um, and it's just kind of the way that we're at right now with this team is just, uh, there aren't a lot of answers. There's way more questions about what you're going to see on the back end. Fabes, this was great, bud. Thanks for doing it. Enjoy the rest of the week. We'll do this again next week. You betcha guys. Have a good one. You too. Thanks. That's Chris Faber from Canucks Conversation, the podcast and Canucks Army here on the Halford and Bruff show on Sportsnet 650. Uh, real quick, just so you know, what's on the horizon for the Vancouver Canucks today is an off day. No practice, no media, no nothing. However, uh, don't be surprised if there'll be some roster cuts either today or maybe tomorrow morning. Uh, it looks as like a lot of other teams across the NHL are doing that first round of cuts that always comes after the first exhibition game or in the case of the Vancouver Canucks, a pair of split squad games. So that's probably what's going to happen today. Uh, practices presumably Tuesday and Wednesday, and then they're back in action against the Seattle Kraken for another preseason game on Thursday. So that's what the rest of the week will look like. Uh, coming up on this show, the next hour, what it's going to look like, Ian McIntyre is going to join us, Sportsnet's very own, on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Uh, we'll continue the conversation with iMac about this Canucks team moving forward. And then at 8.30, we're going to do what we learned. What did you learn over the last 72 hours in sports? Let us know. Hashtag it WWL. Text it to the Dunbar Lumber text line at 650-650. You are listening to the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650.